Welcome back to the Quantum Divide. Thank you for tuning in once again. This time around, we're going to have a look at, I would say, the hardware at a particular point in what would make up a quantum network. I like to think of these as quantum network interface cards. Essentially, these are the devices which are going to sit between the optical domain and the microwave domain inside a cooled quantum computer. And this is going to be really exciting to explore this because this is right at the cutting edge of development and commercialization of quantum information science. So the company I'm interviewing this time around is QFOX and my guest is Robert Stockhill. Rob is the co-founder and CTO of QFOX. I hope you enjoy it. All right then, let's go. Rob Stockhill, an Englishman in the Delft. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well, thanks. I'm very well. Thank you for having me join you guys this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, let's get started. Why don't you give us a bit mm. of an overview of your background, how you got into quantum, how you, the inception of QFOX, if you like, and then we can go from there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So personally, I my route into quantum is through academia. I started working in the field about um, 12 or so years ago, physics undergrad at Oxford, and then started on doing some really interesting projects working on actually at the beginning, trapping ions. That was my first kind of in to experimental quantum physics and then moving into quantum technology. Then I moved on, did a PhD at the at Cambridge University, working on self-assembled quantum dots, looking at how you can basically put the spins of electrons confined in these systems into entangled states and distribute bell states through photons that interact with these spins. But then I went over to Delft, actually, as a postdoc to work on this field of optomechanics. So basically the interaction between light and mechanical vibrations. And then once I got into Delft, there was a specific application of this field of optomechanics, which is building of quantum transducers, which is really a um, specific use of this interaction to then take the interaction between the light and the mechanics and then use it to convert optical photons into microwave photons and vice versa. So we were working on this. I was working on this with the now CEO of QFOX, uh, Simon Groblacher. He was my PI. I was a postdoc. We were working on this in the lab, doing kind of early days research, figuring out what sort of materials we can build these devices out of. How can we measure how well they work? And then come 2020 to early 2021, we were like, we started seeing that really it's time to look at being serious about commercializing this technology. So actually taking this application and yeah, commercializing it, de fully developing it from just much further than you could do in a academic research lab. So we went out and of course, to begin with, it's an investment game. You can't start this company from just scratch. There's a, a lot of infrastructure and equipment and people needed to really push this technology out. We were lucky enough to find some really motivating, enthusiastic investors. So 2021, about May, we really kicked off the company properly, QFOX, um, with there were six of us at the beginning. Now in early 2024, there's 21 people in the company. So it's grown quite a lot. And we've, yeah, just, it's been a kind of a wild two and a half years of getting everything going and really pushing this technology forward both of its core performance, but also its applications with end customers. Yeah, I guess it's a factor of a combination of researching and learning the technology and at the same time, the start of the need, potential need for it from the development of quantum computing, right? All exactly, these things have got exactly. to be lined up. 
yeah yeah exactly exactly and it's one of these technologies this quantum transduction but it's very much if it was really there as a product it would be in huge demand it's the sort of thing which the developers of quantum computers they want it they want it asap but i'm finding and matching those development timelines is always yeah key really Okay, so let me start with the question. Why are you called QFox? I've, I've tried to guess a few times, yeah. but... What's your mate? You don't want to tell me what your well, main I was, guess I was, is. <laughs> I was thinking quantum <laughs> photonic or photon, and then X is the transduction bit somehow. Uh, no, I like that. I think that's, that's actually, that's really close. That's really close. So I, I mentioned, right, that a real core component of our technology is this interaction between light and mechanical vibration. This is a real key ingredient of the whole process by which we convert photons between microwave and optical frequencies. And so light or microwave, you know, this is photonics dealing with photons. And then the vibrational mode, these are phonons. So you have maybe phononics as the analogous and, uh, word. And really what there was uh, at times in the, um, in the community, they, they would look at folksonics as the X being a free variable between photon and phonon and the interaction between the two. And I think this was really the, the little pun that kind of we built our name around, maybe a little Easter egg for people who are in the know, really. Wow, I feel like I'm in the know now. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, so let's, let's go into this technology a little bit, shall we, first of all. Why is ch- transducing necessary? And... What challenges does it try to solve? Yeah, yeah. So really, transduction is like a very general term, right? I suppose if you try, you try, you're looking at changing something from one carrier to another. Like a microphone is a transducer, right? It turns sound waves into electrical impulses. And really, so when we say transduction, it's a, it's a catch-all term for converting quantum information between a microwave frequency photon and an optical frequency photon. So that's the core transduction process that our technology is, is solving. And what we're really doing there is we're... So what it, the core reason to transduce comes down to the different energy scales of microwave frequency photons and optical frequency photons. So you have really interesting and leading quantum systems which are based around microwave frequency radiation. So say superconducting qubits, right? They encode their quantum state in microwave frequency photons or quantum dots also interact with microwave frequency fields. But the energy is too small such that it can't beat, say, thermal energy at room temperature. This is one of the reasons that you take these systems and you cool them down in like a dilution refrigerator to millikelvin temperatures because you need to freeze out thermal radiation. But optical frequency photons they're 100,000 times higher in energy. And so you can have single photons well above thermal noise at room temperature. So really by performing this transduction between microfrequency photons and optical frequencies, what we can do is we can bring quantum information that's say at the bottom of a dilution fridge encoded in a quantum computer, and we can bring that at optical frequencies out of the cryostat. And we can now network this quantum computer with, say, other quantum computers that are in other cryostats through optical fibers. And this can be locally, like a local area network in a data center, but even dreaming bigger, 
if you're using telecom wavelength light, this could be over kilometers due to the kind of the propagation of these optical photons down fibers. So at the heart of it, what we're doing is we're allowing, by performing this quantum transduction, we're hoping to bring quantum information outside of the cryostat and start connecting individual quantum processes together to help them scale into larger systems and reach the sort of qubit numbers you need to actually unlock universal fault-tolerant quantum computation. And that, of course, is the, is, that's the primary reason why you would interconnect multiple machines. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about this. Uh, we talk about this a lot, obviously. Are there other reasons from your perspective? Or um, scaling is the thing, right? And each modality has its own scaling issues. And mm. the more people I speak to, the more I realize every modality is going to need networking at some point. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, keen to hear a bit more about your perspective. Yeah, I think scaling is a really critical motivator behind developing this sort of transduction technology. I think when you talk about every modality, there's a sort of a larger dream of transduction, which is, you know, I think also unlocking the ability to now combine different modalities together through these optical photons. You have people developing optical-only realizations of quantum computing. And the, and the ability to, say, combine the particular strengths of that sort of imp implementation with a microwave frequency realization like superconducting qubits. Or maybe an atomic system that uses, that communicates with optical photons. You could have this interact with, say, a microwave frequency system. So I think that's, in some sense, I think a longer term dream than just pushing scaling. But I think this is a really interesting thing that some the transduction unlocks is actually being able to interconnect these different varieties of qubit definitions. Yeah. And also, as I mentioned, it's, again, longer term, but pushing towards something like the quantum internet, being able to combine optical frequency networking with the computational power you might get from, say, a microwave frequency system like one of these superconducting qubit-based processes, I think is a really fascinating motiva motivation behind this technology. So QFOX is a spin-out from TU Delft. Yeah. Uh, and I would be curious to know how is the ecosystem in Delft. We heard about the UK ecosystem a couple of episodes back about yeah. all these aspects, but I know that the, the Delft ecosystem is, has an advantage is in the EU. And I'd be curious to know how did the, <laughs> maybe it's not an advantage, but it's, you know, UK has the Brexit. And now the, the, the next hub in Europe is in Netherlands, I would say. So I'd be curious to know your opinion on that. How did the Netherlands ecosystem help uh, uh, QFOX establish oh. itself? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's super important. It's super important to the existence of QFOX. Delft is a fantastic place to be developing these technologies. As a hub, it is in rude health. There are, for a long time now, the university has been a, an amazing... TU Delft, right? Has been a fantastic center for research into these quantum technologies. And now, as the commercial field has emerged... It's very much emerged in Delft. There are a proper handful of companies that are all working on really interesting complementary problems in quantum computation. There's a large amount of um, collaboration, projects across companies supporting each other 
a lot of us are based now in a building outside of the university, this House of Quantum, which is a great place, a fully functioning research and development center really now for these technologies. So it's really a fantastic place to try and get these really ambitious companies off the ground. And EU, um, EU funding has played a really important role in getting a lot of these companies going. Yeah. And I guess the interactions... Yeah, of course. It was mostly, yeah, exactly what I was looking for. Because I know how strong it is in the UK, but uh, the EU maybe is going to fall behind. But I don't think so, because I see all the activities coming out of Netherlands. And it'd be, it's good to know that, you know, it still holds on some of that quantum technology with no, I don't know, export licensing and all these problems. So mm-hmm. we can collaborate with cross countries. Yeah, coming from Germany, being able to access some of those things in the future, perhaps. The the Dutch government, I'm a Brit who's done a lot of work in the Netherlands, and the Dutch government have made a number of, I think, really great tactical choices, like the British government as well, putting money in and yeah, getting involved in really helping advance these technologies. Yeah. I've got to say, House of Quantum sounds a bit like a Netflix series, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'd be a great one, but I guess it's an accelerator of some kind, is it? It takes some of the pressure off in launching a startup and yeah I, I think yeah and it's it's a building we can join it but also um we're developing hardware and this means especially developing hardware outside of say a university um it's not easy there's a lot of requirements on the space where we can get the right equipment in the right place with the necessary infrastructure to get going and this is where having these hub and having other companies you can pull together to get a building off the ground is really fantastic not being alone there and of course we still work a lot with the university we're independent of course but it's it still plays a really important role in our development yeah that was going to be towards my next question going back into the tech thinking about okay so the building the transducer what does that actually involve what kind of science do you need to build the transducer what does your lab look like if you can tell us What's a typical day in the lab like? Yeah, of course, of course. Our transducers, at their core, it's nanofabricated devices. So this is work in the clean room, PBM lithography, making the microwave and mechanical and optical resonators that can confine these fields and enable these conversion processes that occur within our transducers. So these are fabricated in the clean room, typically, and of course, it's very important for us that we develop in QFOX scalable, where possible, have fabrication techniques. Each transducer is really small. It's about a bit over 0.1 millimeters squared. So you can make hundreds to thousands of them in a single fabrication run. And then, But then we're bringing them out of the clean room and we're testing them, cooling them down to millikelvin temperatures and then connecting them to qubits. We have... Um, uh, at QFOX, we have a number of really strong collaborations with people that develop quantum computers. This is really important to us, right? We can't we can't uh, silo ourselves as a company. We're a connectivity business. So we, after testing our devices, we're now connecting them to people's systems and we're looking at the interaction between our transducers and their quantum computers. So I'm trying to visualize what it would look like to connect transducer to a superconducting quantum computer. Is it one transducer per qubit or is it a single transducer and then multiplex to the qubits? Uh, yeah. So 
currently, right, you can connect. We, we built these systems so they can be connected in a modular fashion. So we, they, we can be connected through coaxial lines. And so they can be multiplexed together, for instance, mm -hmm. or it could be a one-to-one. -one. So there, there are quite a few different connectivity options there. We don't want the qubit and the transducer living on the same chip. That's mm -hmm. too close there. You want to protect and shield your qubit from any of, say, the optical frequency radiation, which you need to have in your transducer. So you want to keep them quite modular and apart from one another to make sure, yeah, you preserve the quality of your qubits. I always thought it was a transducer right in, into the device and then somehow it manages to produce the microwaves inside it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You can have them all on the same microwave line and the same way you can have them multiplexed on optical yeah. fibers as well that then come out mm -hmm. of the fridge. Interesting. So layman's description, qubit emits microwave photon. It's guided into the resonator. It somehow interferes with the photon. Like you must maybe encourage them in together gently and give them a bit of TLC. Say, off you go. And then they do some kind of interaction and the photon flies out again. That's what yeah. I'm imagining. Is that, is, how far away is that? I, I think I, th I think you're I think you're pretty close, honestly. You, and you're right to say you're right to introduce that photon that your um, the optical photon, your microwave photon, is intermingling, right? We, if you want to go between microwave and optical frequencies, there's a huge energy gap there, right? You're going from say five gigahertz frequency to two hundred thousand gigahertz is your optical frequency, and you always need to compensate, right? Energy has to be conserved. So if you want to do this conversion, you always have to send in a laser pulse, something that can compensate for that energy difference. But the rest of it is of your description. Yeah, is is, is pretty accurate. You, you know, this it, it kind of there's many preamble. There are many different ways of doing this. But in in this sort of version you're talking about, yeah, you can emit a photon from your superconducting qubit. This could then be say entangled with the states inside your qubit, and yeah, this microwave photon enters the transducer, and then now this has been in QFOXs technology, that microwave frequency photon gets converted through piezoelectric coupling into a microwave frequency phonon, so a mechanical mode. And then that mechanical mode is what interacts with our optical laser pulse that we send in, and then the device will emit a single optical photon back out onto the fiber that roots out of the fridge. Okay, so then from the logical perspective, quantum algorithm would have to incorporate some additional stages or let's say some additional hardware control to perform additional transduction steps. It would be, is that a layer on itself or how would you see the transduction in impacting the yeah, I, algorithm deployment? No, I think that's a really good link to make. As a lot of quantum computers right now, say superconducting quantum computers, just to take mm -hmm. a subset, right? They're based on these, you know, these plaquettes. Um, of qubits. And these qubits are right next to each other. They're very strongly coupled. They have very fast interactions, very noise-free interactions. That's the right way of saying it, very low noise interaction. And as you scale up the system, you look at different forms of modularity. Maybe you have chip-to-chip -chip connections in the same cryostat. Maybe they're just through, I don't know, local bonds, or maybe they're longer range through coaxial cables. And maybe they're ultimately optically realized interconnects between different fridges. And I think as you get further away, yes, the interaction rate 
it's going to slow down. Maybe it's not going to be, maybe it's going to have a little more noise than the local interaction. And this is something you will have to ultimately develop your algorithms around to compensate for these different forms of interaction between qubits. Okay. So I took a, I just, okay, I just realized something then uh, since you're speaking. So you just said it, but <laughs> now it's clicked in my head what it means. So the, there's a stage process towards going from multi-chip or perhaps even single-chip QPU, a quantum process unit, and that it might be to add additional connectivity to the chip. Perhaps you have some qubits on the bottom right, some qubits on the top left or mm. something, and now you need to bring those qubits together. Perhaps you can use transduction there to add additional connectivity. And then there's, I don't know if that's even the first step, but that sounds like a first step. <laughs> and then second step would be multiple chips connected with the transduction line and then grow that to separate fridges. Yeah, I think the transducer really gets involved once you start looking fridge to fridge, because that's fridge where, why do you need to go to optical frequencies? Because you now want mm -hmm. to bring your signal up to room temperature. You want to have that sort of extra connectivity. Right. Actually, before, Dan, you mentioned other uses of the transducer, right? And I think mm -hmm. it is worth kind of just briefly mentioning. So this is a, this single photon conversion is a real headline application of what we're developing at QFOX. Um, but at the heart of it, we're making very efficient microwave to optical conversion devices. So efficient that ultimately they can work down to a single photon level. And there are actually loads of really interesting uses for converting small few photon packets between microwave and optical frequencies beyond say quantum transduction. So for instance, if you want to measure qubits at the bottom of a fridge, you typically need a bunch of cryogenic amplifiers, like you need an amplifier stage at four Kelvin in order to have a sufficient readout signal of your qubits. That's not, that signal isn't overwhelmed by thermal noise. You can also, at now the bottom of the fridge, convert your readout signal, which is not a quantum signal, it's a classical signal, which has, say, a few photons in it, you can use a transducer to convert that into the optical domain and now measure that at room temperature. So there's a, a bunch of really interesting applications of this technology that's in the few photon rather than single photon domain as well. What's the timeline? What's the step-by-step -step process to go from zero to connecting quantum computers? Is it one step? But that sounds like also a very important use case, enhancing mm -hmm. measurement outcomes, because those, of course, getting those correct is also very beneficial for quantum computing. You can measure more accurately, or if more simply, it can do better quantum computing. Exactly. You can start by saying, okay, how many, by looking at how I measure and how I control qubits, how many can I fit into a single cryostat? when you're really looking in detail at what's the thermal budget I have of a system that can cool down to millikelvin temperatures. And then once you've maxed that out, you can then also look at, okay, how do I now start having multiple systems talk to each other? And just to keep trying to push up the qubit numbers, basically. Rob, what's the alternative? Are there people looking at connecting these dilution refrigerators through very low temperature millikelvin connections? somehow yeah yeah and no th this has been explored yeah i think th these are fantastic uh, tests that people have done right where they've built these superconducting coaxial lines that connect the dilution fridges together i think this is an option i think this is a challenging option nothing is unchallenging <laughs> in, in quantum in quantum technology 
I think once you have the transduction, once you've gone it through that hard process or relatively hard process of going from microwave to optical frequency at the bottom of the cryostat, then you unlock so much connectivity with relative ease between these systems at room temperature. The hard bit is just get, getting, you get up into that optical frequency and then you can get out of the fridge and you can go meters, uh, even kilometers through the optical fiber with very little loss. So if you're actually really trying to interconnect lots of systems together, going through these optical fibers, having routing and being able to measure these systems becomes a lot easier once you're in the optical domain, which I think is why it's such an interesting technology for people. Yeah, so you said that's the hardest bit to, to do the actual conversion, transduction. What are the things that can go wrong? So what is it sensitive to? I guess it's heat and vibration. But then is it different when you're doing the actual transduction? Are there other, th other things beyond what a quantum computer is sensitive to that can affect the transduction quality? Maybe, you know, Do you have to align things correctly or sort of some other kind of variable? Yeah, I think, um, so one of the challenges of the transduction is that microwave frequency photons and optical frequency photons don't couple to each other very strongly. This is, you can couple them directly to each other using nonlinear optical materials, but this is a really weak coupling. So getting that conversion process efficient enough such that you can start converting single photons is not a trivial problem to solve at all. And this is why, for instance, we use these mechanical resonators to make the system a lot more efficient. So when you're designing these systems and building and testing them, it's all about how efficient is my process and how noise-free is my process. But then you also look at other challenges, for instance, how much optical power do I have to put into my cryostat in order to make this process work? And is the amount of optical power I need so much that say, I could only run one transducer in my fridge before I've heated up the whole system. So you have to really look at the whole setup. Is it gonna be scalable? How, how many transducers can you run in parallel? You also have to say, with these technologies, you have to look at, say, what the bandwidth of the conversion is. Is my transducer, is it going to be compatible with the signals that come out of my quantum computer? Can I mode match them well enough such that I have a really efficient channel? There are lots of challenges to get right there. I guess there's a bit of a dichotomy with putting something in that needs power into the refrigerator that's cooled down to stop any heat getting in. So... There's a risk, is there, of doing too much transduction or perhaps not being configured in such a way that it protects the qubits, the computing qubits themselves. Like you said, you've got to think about the whole system. Exactly, exactly. And this is where a lot of these challenges in the actual transducer design and development come around. Optics and superconductivity do not mix terribly well. So there's a lot of hard work in actually building a design that can combine these two fields together and make them interact without them damaging each other at the same time. Fascinating. Honestly, it really is.
what I would like to ask actually is the was it piezoelectrical effect? Piezoelectric, yeah. Could I know it's right at the core of how the whole thing works. What is that effect? And yeah, how can you describe it in words that I could understand? Piezoelectricity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I need to make sure I get the exact fields right. Piezoelectricity is the coupling between mechanical vibrations and electrical fields, effectively, right? So this is, say, what you have in a quartz oscillator in your watch, right? You have a mechanical oscillator, which is then picked up electrically and used as a a timing reference so that your watch stays regular. So when you say coupled... The word coupled means yeah that they're sharing the vibration, the rate of vibration, or the position, their polarization. Me- their yeah, yeah. So by coupled, it means that say a change in electric field. So if you apply electric field across say a piezoelectric crystal, it will change shape, effectively, right? So if I apply electric field across piezoelectric crystal, it will stretch, and then if that electric field oscillates. It will stretch and squish and stretch and squish and start to oscillate itself and vice versa. That's what I mean by coupled. So effectively, you are transferring energy between mechanical vibration and an electromagnetic vibration. Does that yep. clear well, it up a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, well, on an incredibly nano scale. Yeah, exactly. But we're doing this with very small oscillators. We're basically taking a piece of material about, say, 500 nanometers wide and we're putting an electric field across it and making it stretch and squish and because it's so small the frequency of it stretching and squishing is very high it's in the few gigahertz this means that mechanical mode is now at the same frequency as your the photons that you're encoding your quantum information with in your quantum computer And so that's how we can take a gigahertz frequency photon and translate it into a gigahertz frequency phonon, basically a deformation of this 500 nanometer wide tiny block of piezoelectric material on silicon, which we then turn into, we can then couple to optical fields and turn into optical radiation. And the actual state is transferred through the energy transfer which is defined in a Hamiltonian. Yeah, yeah. so once you have a, a channel like this, you, need, you want to encode some information into it. So, for instance, you could encode information into, say, the presence or absence of a photon. And the presence or absence of a photon will be trans... A microwave photon, sorry, would be converted into the presence or absence of an optical photon. And as long as you keep everything low noise enough, you don't corrupt the information that's encoded there. And that's where you need to be really careful. Yeah, amazing. So we I, I, we spent a long time talking about going between microwave and optical frequencies. And then we took a diversion into piezoelectricity because we have this mechanical mode. But it's that use of piezoelectricity is really important for making the transduction we do a QFOX efficient because one of the challenges of converting single photons between such widely different frequencies, gigahertz and optical, is that the wavelengths of that radiation, they're very different 
gigahertz frequencies have wavelengths in them up in the millimeters and while the optical wavelengths are down in the single micron but by using this piezoelectric coupling by going from microwave frequency photon to a microwave frequency phonon because the speed of sound is so much lower than the speed of light the wavelength of this phonon this mechanical vibration is actually is a lot smaller so it, it's really similar to the wavelength of the optical light and this means that they can interact really strongly it's like a gearing isn't it basically it's you're like you're down gearing the power to allow the interaction to happen more efficiently yeah you're changing yeah you're changing the mode so that it then overlaps yeah and i think that's a real kind of key component of why we of what goes into the design and the fabrication of our technology superb thanks and i apologize it's turned into a bit of a physics lesson it starts with the physics, you know. So yeah. What are the unanswered questions? What don't hmm. you know? Do you I know think, that you don't know? I, I think really fascinating process to take the scientific development and now bring it out into a company and actually apply the standards you need in order to make proper product development. And I think, and I think this is something the whole field of quantum technologies is going through at the moment is how do you actually get the really the the variability of the devices you're making the, ex the exact performance to the standards where you really actually have a product at the end of the day and i think this is a really interesting challenge that companies are developing quantum hardware are going through yeah so not only are you developing a product the fact is they need to go out into the field, right? So they need to be reliable, supportable, predictable, those kind of things. Are you working with some, you've mentioned a, a few of your partners already, quantum computing partners. How are you preparing yourself for the different, let's take superconductors for the number of different superconducting platforms out there. Is it a matter of a custom development for every single partner? Yeah, yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. They're like At the end of the day, to us, even if it's a quantum dot or a superconducting qubit, it's a microwave photon that we're converting. But there are sp specifics between, say, different realizations of microwave frequency qubits and also different realizations of superconducting qubits. Say the frequency might be a bit different. You want, Some people might operate at 5 gigahertz, some people might operate at 6 gigahertz or 6.5 for instance. And so there is customization there, but it's say, it's a design based tuning of the system. So it's tweaking the exact design, but it's not starting from scratch. There are different quantitative variations on the same device for different realizations of qubits. Triggered something in my head when you said standards. <laughs> I know it's not the most interesting topic, but it's an important topic, especially when it comes to engineering devices. I guess it's a, in the infancy stage, right? There's no, or maybe, maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit what's the status of standardizing how a microwave-based qubit works to make sure that your transducers will always work with the customers that you want to support. Perhaps if you get so much variety, maybe it's hard to manufacture so many different varieties of transducers. I don't know how many there could possibly be, but... That is such an interesting question. And one that I'm... I just personally say I wish I could answer a, a bit better. I know that there is a lot of 
early stage work going in at the moment to developing standards in quantum technology, starting to lock these things down. Right now, to the best of my knowledge, they don't exist. I might check that. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> um, probably, I would probably agree with that. I'd be surprised. And so, if yeah, there is a wide variety. Again, a lot of these systems are maybe quantitatively different, but built out of similar technologies and core ingredients. And so that maybe just operates at a slightly different frequency to another one. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why it's really important that our technology is modular, right? And that we don't require too tight a co-integration. We make friends with a lot of people <laughs> and we work with a lot of people to make sure that we're up to speed on exactly how things are operating. At the same time, I think, hopefully, say you look at dreaming a little bigger, you look at diverse technologies like atomic systems or micro systems, and you think if you were to define standards, what would be a great way to communicate these systems together? Telecom wavelength optical radiation is a great channel to try and bring different systems together. Our devices work in the telecom C-band. So I'm 1550 nanometers. That's by design. We choose to work there because it's the best place to best place to scale over long distances. And I think as we look to developing, say, networking standards, these are these kind of a, are great choices. And then we can because we can control basically every feature of our transducer. It's a design choice as we 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 then etch into silicon and, and build we can hopefully be compatible with these sort of networking standards as they emerge. Yeah. Yeah. Especially everything's still shaping out. It's hard to put everything on paper and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it from now on when we're so early as well. So it's probably better if there's no standard yet. It's this way. Exactly. Transfer evolution of the technology. Yeah. 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 And normally when standards start developing, you get more than one anyway. So. <laughs> just to mix it up a bit it may be that it's in your interest to stimulate the development of a standard at some point yeah rob in one of the areas to, to suit the way that your modularity works perhaps exactly exactly and what about interactions with other platforms then they would be very different wouldn't they could you try and guesstimate for me what a, an interface with a neutral atom would look like as I an think example that's a great question so it's like i'm waving the flag for the Optical telecom band, 1500 nanometer. Uh, you got to stick protons. to it now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe in it. The one actually feature of many atomic systems, right, is that they actually, they talk to optical radiation, but they talk to visible or near infrared optical radiation, say rubidium around 780 nanometers. So if you were to try and talk to, say, talk from your microwave frequency system to an atomic system, you probably need to go through, say, a two-stage conversion process. You need to bring both systems to the telecom band. Luckily, bringing visible wavelength quantum systems, say trapped ions or neutral atoms, to the telecom band is a lot more straightforward. You're only, say, halving the energy of your photons rather than trying to increase them by a factor of a hundred thousand. And so this is a, the, these processes are a little bit more mature, but you need to define a common mode basically through which you can now exchange information. 
and you also need to have this unbroken channel that allows quantum information to pass between the two systems. So you probably need some sort of nonlinear optical device to convert between the atomic system and the telecom band. But once you have, once you brought them both to that band, then you can be really flexible because you're light in the optical fiber. It can go meters, kilometers, and you can, you don't need to have too tight a co-integration of the systems. So, yeah, I get the ability to move up and down the wavelengths and that there's a much smaller gap and no need for a piezoelectric capability there, is there? Because it's essentially, it's the photons are just changing wavelengths as they're going between the systems. Yeah, so converting between visible and telecom wavelengths, while it's not completely straightforward, is a much simpler task because the wavelength difference is much smaller, the modes much more readily overlap, and so it can be made efficient. It can be made into a very efficient process much more straightforwardly than going from a single microwave photon to a single optical photon. That's, if you were to start to try and plug these systems together, that would be the first challenge to overcome, is just to bring them onto the same wavelength such that they, you can encode information that can pass between them. A lot of these quantum systems also have obviously very different dynamics. Atomic systems are often a lot slower, for instance, than superconducting qubits. But they have, but I think it's a great ability to be able to actually take advantage of their different properties. In a computer, a classical computer, you encode information in all sorts of different physical realizations to take advantage of their different peculiarities. Why should a quantum computer have a single physical encoding? So we discussed the technology and uh, kind of the challenges that need to be overcome and what's the applications. What do you see the technology going in the next five years? What do you want to show with it? What's the, or what's the big demonstration? Maybe five years is too long, maybe it's too short. What's the first, what's the milestone to hit at the moment? That's a great question. So when it comes to actually this quantum transduction, so um, converting single photons between microwave and optical frequencies, I think the big breakthrough that you should keep your eye out for, and is definitely something we're targeting, is actually demonstrating now entanglement between microwave frequency qubits housed in separate cryostats. So let's say transferring information between them, but preparing them in a highly entangled state. I think this is a this would be a really huge breakthrough that would really start the ball rolling on connecting these systems together. For QFOX, we're pushing towards this, but also, as I mentioned before, we, as a commercial company, we're really interested in also the earlier applications of this efficient photon conversion technology. So there's a lot of work on looking at, say, performing optical frequency readout of these qubits in a scalable way. We just shared last October on the archive results of a pilot study we did on this with Rigetti. Um, computing. So continuing to develop these slightly nearer term applications of this efficient frequency conversion hardware is uh, is something that we're going to be really focusing on over the next few years. Yeah. That's something I'm really interested to see. Connecting quantum computers 
coming from an African company, this is where, <laughs> what we're looking at very closely as well. So, I mean, I'm looking at it very closely. See when, you know, then we need the network layer. We have the, the ability to connect more computers. Now we can start talking networking, I think. I mean, we could already start, but then it starts being realistic. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. I, I, I don't want to give the impression that once you've projected distant qubits into an entangled state, it's game over. It's game <laughs> on. It's the first step of actually mm -hmm. building a networked quantum data center, effectively. And then, of course, you have to think seriously about, okay, how am I going to be distributing this entanglement? What kind of system do I run? Do I do this on demand? Am I farming entanglement between my quantum computers all the time? What? And then, of course, algorithm design. How do I accommodate the physics and the rates and the maybe different connectivity that I can realize between these systems? Once you have optical interconnects, you've got all-to-all -all connectivity between your systems, right? You have a much more flexible way of routing signals, and this really opens up different alternatives for algorithm design. It's going to be a whole another series of trial and tribulation, I guess, aren't there, and experimentation of different ways of doing it. The way you described it there could be in a data center room, lots of point-to-point -point connections, continuous entanglement distribution, point-to-point, -point, or you, you mentioned farming. So I guess that's somehow kind of building up a collection of entanglement for consumption. There's a whole, yeah, I'm imagining it's like a, it's opening the door to all of this experimentation, isn't it? Basically, we're waiting for you, Rob, to open the door. I'm working on it. Exactly, because like this, with any sort of information transfer protocol in quantum computing, you can look at direct transfer, but also you can also generate entanglement and go for teleportation-based transfer and how exactly um, these schemes work. And also how, for instance, memories, so a lot of people are developing these optical frequency quantum memories, how they could enhance the ability to connect these systems together is a really interesting question, not just relying on the catching, launching the process and detecting the photons at the right time, but maybe using buffering between the systems, I think is a really interesting option. Hardware, notwithstanding. Yeah, it's, it's the way that we move away from this monolithic approach to hopefully something which is a lot more flexible and ultimately scalable when it comes to computing. If you guys got in your roadmap some kind of, I mean, you could diversify in many different directions. Um, we've been talking about different types of transduction. Mm. What about up to the software layer or the actual networking part? Or where do you see yourselves? What's interesting you at the moment? I know it's probably too hard to say because it's a few years away, but what's on your, what's on your mind when it comes to diversification? I, I think that's a really good question. At the moment, uh, at QFOX, our main focus is all about the hardware, developing, pushing the performance, taking it as far as we can, and also pushing partnerships, making sure that our devices are interacting with other people's systems and that we're really demonstrating the promise of our technology. I think when it comes to software, there's the software aspect of the, of the product development. There's the software that serves the hardware. I think as a strategy for us at the moment, it's 
there's a lot we want to make sure that we're we're taking full advantage of our unique expertise and that's really in hardware development and testing i think when you're a growing company you have to find that balance between diversification de-risking but also making the most of your unique speciality we're the qfox we're the really first company to really try and commercialize in a serious way i think this quantum transduction technology and we want to make sure that we're really taking advantage of that position so i think that i think there's a balance with diversification oh definitely basically definitely yeah yeah, that's why strategy is so important. Yeah, <laughs> we're thinking about what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that's a good start. That's a good start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Joking. Thank but yeah, you. I think that the layer will be important, but I think for the moment we have to make sure that the hardware is there. Yeah. Brilliant. I just wanted to say thank you very much for sharing all of that with us. Super fascinating to hear what you're doing down at that level. And I'm very excited to see how your product development works out and uh, to see some of the, I'm sure there'll be lots of public announcements of additional work with new partners and it'll be fantastic to see, Um, especially that first shared entanglement between two different dilution fridges. Looking forward to that. I think that's that's definitely something to keep your eye out for sure. No, thanks very much for your questions. I hope. I provided some <laughs> illumination on them. Yeah, no, it was good fun talking to you, Rob. Thanks very much. Bye for now. Cheers. Thanks a lot. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform, and I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word, it would really help us out.